Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the American Experience Podcast. My name is Amber DeLugash and I teach a dual credit composition course in Bolivar, Missouri. Seniors in my comp class are wrestling with our coursework through the lens of an essential question this semester. What does it mean to be an American? At one point, a student reflected that stories create connection and connection creates understanding. Therefore, we decided that in order for us to walk away from the semester with a greater understanding of this question, we had to talk with Americans. We had to hear their stories, and we feel their experiences and insight are valuable. So we wanted to share them with you. So thanks for listening. Here's another episode of The American Experience. Our eighth guest for the semester was Allie Henney. Allie grew up just a short drive north of us in Clinton, Missouri, but now calls Springfield her home. She's a vibrant woman, mom, prior youth pastor, poet, writer, and speaker. We learned about Allie through our first guest, Brett Miller, who said Allie was a must-have guest. He believes she is an up-and-coming voice for racial healing, and this is evidenced in all that she does. Currently, Allie contributes to The Witness, a black Christian collective. We were honored to host Allie in person and hear her perform poetry that captures her American experience and the experience of many others. My name is Allie Henny. Um, I am here, Ms. Lugosh is so uh, like generous to invite me um, to come and speak to you guys. I guess that my, what she knows before is sort of my side hustle. I'm a writer, a speaker. Um, I have a page on Facebook, I'm on the Twitter. Um, I know that, that that's like all stuff that you guys are like, like, what's your Snapchat though? Like, like, <laughs> like I'm, on, I'm on Instagram. Um, that, that might be like, because I'm, I'm, I'm old. So like, I'm, so like, I mean, I remember whenever Facebook was only for college kids and it was super like exclusive. That's, that's how old I am. I am Facebook was only for, hey, sorry, I was writing a speech. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> I mean, Facebook was only a thing for college kids years old. And so, um, anyway, but what, what my actual, I guess, job is, is that I am a minister. I used to be a youth pastor. Um, I'd say in another life, because it's been a couple of years since I've actually been a youth pastor, but I mean, your, your age group, teenagers, that's my, that's my jam. Um, but since then, since the last time I was a youth pastor, um, I've started going to seminary. I'm, I'm looking at becoming, hopefully one day, the, the lead pastor, um, senior pastor of a church. That's something that I that I really hope to do. So something that I that I do. So that's what like I do my school stuff, and that's pretty and that's pretty cool. And um, I guess that some of my school work does have to do with with race and that type of and that whole type of thing. It, it definitely um, comes up. In, in my in my schoolwork for sure, but on social media and everything, a lot of the things that I do is I'm vocal about race. I've I've uh, talked, yeah, I've been on some podcasts. I actually am having I have a podcast that'll be coming um, this January um, called Coming the Roots, and it's where I'm going to be talking just about like the race issue in the United States. I am originally from a little town called Clinton. You guys might be familiar with Clinton. Um, <laughs> Is anybody in here in band? Okay, Mr. True is my percussion instructor whenever I was a sophomore. So, <laughs> so and then um, Mr. Miles, who's the band director at Clinton High School, played the saxophone whenever I was in band, and we were good friends, and he dated, <laughs> he dated my best friend. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so this is all world after all. But yeah, we, but yeah, we uh, used to try to came down here. We used to run against Bolivar and cross country. So sort of local, sort of sort of not local. But anyway, so I am here um, to talk to you guys about what it means to be an American um, to me. And so 
part of my presentation, I'm going to present some poems. I'm present four, five poems. Originally, I was going to do four, but I added another one. So I am doing "Let America Be America" um, by Langston Hughes. Um, I too by Langston Hughes, who was a Harlem Renaissance poet and writer, novelist extraordinaire. And so he's writing, if you remember from, from history and from English and everything, Harlem Renaissance was like the 1920s, around that age. So a lot of, a lot of people refer um, to the Gilded Age. Um, so the Harlem Renaissance sort of was kind of at the same time as the Gilded Age, but then it was like, but then it was a little bit after, um, too. But it sort of um, intersects a little bit with that with that time period. Um, I will be reciting um, "For My People" by Margaret Walker. So she is um, the decade or two after Langston Hughes. Um, so she actually grew up reciting Langston Hughes, and then she became a poet herself. Something that I forgot to mention is that Langston Hughes is a fellow of Missouri, and he was born in Joplin. Um, I can't remember how long he lived here, but fellow, fellow, it's always good. Like whenever somebody's from Missouri, you're like yeah, no matter like they like they were born here, like they're like they they were like you know on a horse carriage, and like their mom they were born here, and then, like they went over to another state. It doesn't matter. Like Missouri, we always claim people, um, and so Langston Hughes. Um, was from Missouri. So then I will also be reciting um, Still I Rise by Maya Angelou, who is another Missourian. Um, I don't think that she lived here for very long, but she was born in St. Louis, so she counts. <laughs> Once again, you gotta like grab all those famous people because nobody is from Missouri except for Mark Twain and Harry Truman. So we have to, and Daniel Boone, uh, if you didn't know that, Daniel Boone is also from Missouri. We always have to kind of grab those famous people as Missourians as much as we can. And then I'm going to be reciting a poem. Uh, it was a pre-verse poem, so like if you listen, I don't know how much English that you guys have had, but if you listen, there are some rhymes in it and there are some approximate rhymes in it, but it's not, but it doesn't actually like follow any type of rhyme scheme because it's because it's it's free verse. And so there's some like internal rhymes and whatever. But anyway, so I'm gonna recite those um, poems because I feel like that they um, are really indicative of um, who I am as an American, even though Hughes and, and Angelou and Walker even though they were before my time, I guess, Yamaya Angelou, she, she passed away, I think, in 2014. It was, so I actually remember her being, being alive, but um, many of those, many of these artists have actually um, passed away, or they, they lived most of their lives during a time in which I wasn't alive. But the, the irony is that even some of the things that they're, that they're speaking to in some of these poems are things very much that would speak to my experience as a black woman today. And then of course the poem that I wrote um, is called In Dixie. And I'll explain, I'll have a little bit more time to explain it than I thought I did. And I want to explain that poem um, a little bit more just because I'm not as good of a writer as Hughes and Walker and Angelou and I feel like that my stuff um, needs a little bit more, more explanation. And so the um, title of that poem, In Dixie, it um, comes from the, I used to live in Virginia, I guess I should say that, is that I lived in Virginia for a while. I lived in a little town called Fredericksburg, Virginia, um, which is halfway between Washington, Washington D.C. and Richmond, which is the capital of Virginia. And if you remember from history, in the Civil War, Washington D.C., of course, was the capital of the United States. And Richmond was the capital of the Confederacy. And so Fredericksburg was literally halfway between the halfway point between those two cities. 
And so Fredericksburg was a very bloody place. There were, I think, maybe four kind of major battles that took place in Fredericksburg. But it was one of the bloodiest places in the Civil War because it was where the two fronts of the, of the two armies met. And so there was always lots of conflict and lots of strife. And so I lived in Virginia during the time when a lot of our nation's conflict and a lot of our nation's strife started to, started to resurface. So I was living out there whenever Trayvon Martin was killed. I was living out there whenever Michael Brown was killed. I sat in my living room and watched St. Louis burning on my, on my TV and, and hearing everybody at home like freaking out about it and having um, all kinds of opinions and all kinds of whatever about it and sort of you know, feeling this, this sense of, I've got to talk about this. And, and, the, uh, and really it was the Ferguson Uprising was something that started that, that motivated me to start being more vocal about my experience as an African American than I had been. I definitely had been vocal about it um, previously, prior to that. But as I, but the thing that was a catalyst for me was watching people that I knew, people that I grew up with, people that I sat in classrooms like this with, people who I sat on pews with in church saying some of the most horrific and racist things that I could imagine because a young man was, was shot in, in St. Louis. And I feel like that Ferguson just brought out a lot of the ugly in people. And it brought out the, a lot of the ugly in my fellow white Americans. And I realized that the people who I was sitting next to in pews and who I had sat next to in classes, who I had babysat their kids, who we had gone out and we had been friends and all this other type of stuff, I realized that if they really knew me and really valued me and really cared about me as a friend and, and saw me in my blackness as a person, there would be no way that they would be able to say some of the stuff that they were saying. And so my poem sort of comes out of that, that place of hurt and out of that experience. And so um, I'm going to recite the poems now. So of course I'm reciting the poems, so it's more, it's not a, it's going to be more, I guess, kind of a, of a dramatic-ish sort of reading. So I move around a little bit and um, stuff like that. But I just want you guys to know because I want to be like, oh, look at this. Like, like, why, like, why is she doing that? <laughs> why, is her, why is her face like that? Um, <laughs> Let America Be America Again by Langston Hughes. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream that it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain, seeking a home where he himself is free. Attention students, we have Jostens here during Liberator time and lunch shifts for seniors to purchase their cap and gown and turn in those order forms. And um, students who took government in summer school this last summer, you received an email from me about a mandatory meeting on Friday during lift time um, with Mr. Rothdiner. We have moved to that meeting to Thursday, and I've sent a new email out to tell you that. Um, due to so many students being out for various activities on Friday, we are going to have the summer school government students meet during lift time in the auditorium on Thursday of this week. So make sure that you you remember to attend that meeting. You'll be getting more information about the EOC test during that meeting. Thank you. Feel free to start again. Oh right, yeah, I'm just, I'm just start that again. That's all right. We didn't get, we didn't get too deep into it. All right. <laughs> 
Let America Be America Again by Langston Hughes. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream that it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain seeking a home where he himself is free. America was never America to me. Let America be the dream that the dreamers dream. Let it be that great, strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme that any man may be crushed by one above. It was never America to me. Oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath. But opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is the air that we breathe. There's never been equality for me. More freedom in this homeland of the free. Say, who are you that mumbles in the dark? And who are you that draws your veil across the stars? I am the poor white, fooled and pushed apart. I am the Negro bearing slavery's scars. I am the red man driven from this land. I am the immigrant clutching the hope I seek and finding only the same old stupid plan of dog-eat-dog -dog and mighty crush the weak. I am the young man full of strength and hope tangled in that ancient endless chain of profit, power, and gain, of grab the land, of grab the gold, of grab what satisfying need, of work the men, of take the pay, of owning everything for one's own greed. I am the farmer, bondsman to the soil. I am the worker sold to the machine. I am the Negro, Negro servant to you all. I am the people, humble, hungry, mean, hungry yet today, despise the dream, beaten yet today, oh pioneers, I'm the man that never got ahead, the poorest worker bartered through the years. I'm yet the one who dreamt our basic dream in the old world when I was still the servant of kings, who dreamt a dream so strong and so brave, so true, that even yet its mighty daring sings. And every brick and stone, every furrow turned, that's made America the land that it's become. Oh, I'm the man that sailed those early seas in search of what I had meant to be my home. For I'm the one that left Ireland's dark shore and Poland's plain and England's grassy lee and torn from black Africa's strand, I came to build this homeland, homeland of the free, the free. Who said the free? Not me, surely not me. The millions on relief today, the millions shot down when we strike, the millions who have nothing for our pay, for all the dreams we've dreamed, and all the songs we've sung, and all the hopes we've held, and all the flags we've hung. The millions who have nothing for our pay, except a dream that's almost dead today. Oh, let America be America again. The land that it hasn't yet been. Yet must be where every man is free. That land's mine. 
but the poor man's, the Indians, the Negroes, me, who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain must bring back our mighty dream again. Sure, call me an ugly name if you choose. The steel of freedom doesn't stain. For those who live like leeches on people's lives, we must take back our land again, America. Oh yes, say it plain. America was never America to me. And yet I swear this oath that America will be. Out of the rack of ruin of our gangster's death, the rape and rot of graft and stealth and lies, we the people must redeem the land, the mines, the plant, the rivers, the mountains and the endless plain. All the stretch of these great green straight states and make America again. I too, by Langston Hughes. I too sing America. I'm the darker brother. They send me to the kitchen when the company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow I'll be at the table when company comes, and nobody will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen. Then Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I too am America. For My People by Margaret Walker. For my people everywhere, singing their slave songs repeatedly, their dirges, their ditties, their blues and jubilees, praying their prayers nightly to an unknown God, bending their knees humbly to an unseen power. For my people lending their strength to the years, to the gone years, the now years, the maybe years, washing, ironing, cooking, scrubbing, sewing, mending, hoeing, plowing, digging, pruning, patching, dragging along, never gaining, never reaping, never knowing, never understanding. For my playmates in the clay and the dust and sand of Alabama, Backyards playing, baptizing, and preaching, and doctor, and jail, and soldier, and school, and mama, and cooking, and playhouse, and concert, and store, and hair, Miss Chumby and company. For the cramped, bewildered years when we went to school to learn, to know the reasons why, and the answers to, and the people who, and the places where, and the days when, in the memory of the bitter hours when we discovered we were black and poor and small, and different, and nobody cared, and nobody wondered, and nobody understood. For the boys and girls who grew in spite of these things, to be man and woman, to laugh, to dance, to sing, to play, to drink their wine and religion and success, to marry their playmates and their children, and anemia and lynching. For my people thronging 47th Street in Chicago and Lenox Avenue in New York and Rampart Street in New Orleans, lost, disinherited, dispossessed, and happy people filling the cabarets and taverns and other people's pockets and needing bread and shoes and milk and land and money and something. Something all our own. For my people walking blindly, 
spreading joy, losing time being lazy, sleeping when hungry, shouting when burdened, drinking when hopeless, tied, shackled, and tangled among ourselves by the unseen creatures who tower over us omnisciently and laugh. For my people blundering and groping and floundering in the dark churches and schools and clubs and societies, associations and councils and committees and conventions, distressed, disturbed and deceived and devoured by money, hungry, glory, craving, leeches, preyed on by facile force of state and fad and novelty, by false prophet and holy believer. For my people standing and staring and trying to fashion a better way from confusion, from hypocrisy and misunderstanding, trying to fashion a world that will hold all the people, all the faces, all the Adams and Eves and their countless generations. Let a new earth arise. Let another world be born. Let a bloody peace be written in the sky. Let a second generation full of courage issue forth. Let a people loving freedom come to growth. Let a beauty full of healing and strength, a final clenching, be the pulsing in our spirits and our blood. Let the martial songs be written. Let the dirges disappear. Let a race of men now rise and take control. Still I Rise by Maya Angelou. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod on me like very dirt, but still like dust, I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you so beset with gloom? Because I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room. Just like moons and suns with certainty of tides, just like hope spring high, still I rise. Did you want to see me broken and bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulder falling down like teardrops weakened by my soulful cries? Does my haughtiness offend you? Don't you take it awful hard? Cause I laugh like I got gold mines, dig it in my own backyard. You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness, but still like air, I'll rise. Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I am a black ocean leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise. Bring the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the dream and the hope of the slave, I rise. I rise, I rise. In Dixie by Allie Henney. Trayvon, look away. Michael, look away. Sandra, say her name. I found my voice living halfway between the capitals of my oppression, with the land of the free and the land of cotton on either side. In Dixieland, I took my stand, refusing to stay silent in the name of comfort, when in truth I was afraid of suffering more abuse at the hands of so-called sisters and brothers. How do I reach 70 times 7 when the grievances multiply exponentially? I'm trying, but I can't count that high. Does this mean I'm not sanctified? Another day, another hashtag. Hashtag, take down the flag. 
Another name, hashtag Charles Kimsey. Another place, hashtag Charleston. Another death, hashtag Philando Castile. And I'm supposed to look away, look away, look away, look away. Respectability. I'm not allowed to point out issues lest anyone feels singled out, censured, or strained. I'm not allowed to invoke, invoke the words of Malcolm. I can't make the suggestion that I'm experiencing oppression because I'm too smart, too good, and a much better person than any of that. Respectability. Act respectful. Step and fetch it. Don't bite the hand that feeds me. I can't step on anybody's toes, but my back is bleeding. I'm sorry. Hold up. Why am I saying I'm sorry? I am not sorry. And I'm not sorry that I'm not sorry because silence gives consent and I refuse to play by those rules of order newly revised. I have a voice. I found my voice to live and die in Dixie. Thank you. Um, I do want to explain one of the lines in, in this poem. There's a, in the last poem that I just read, um, there's a line that talks about how silence gives consent, and um, I don't want to play by those rules of order and move revised. I feel a responsibility when I um, perform this poem to say where that line came from. Um, in parliamentary procedure, um, which is what like the, the government, what the Congress uses whenever they vote do stuff. Silence giving consent means that whenever there's a vote taken, and if you don't voice your yay or nay, that it automatically means a yes vote. And so just in the context of Me Too and that, where silence and consent, where we have, where we have those conversations about consent um, for, for sexual advances or activity, I wanted to say that, you know, consensual, <laughs> um, what, whatever your convictions and beliefs on that, whatever you do, it must always be consensual, but I just wanted to make sure that that was clear, that that was what that line was about, and not saying, hey, you know, don't get consent from people um, before before you engage in, in those kinds of activities. So, thank you. So I guess now we still have time for questions. Yes, yeah, okay. sure. Awesome. Does anyone have any questions? I'm going to grab my water. I forgot to bring that with me. Where are you at, like, right now? Like, where do you go to school at? Um, I go to school online at Fuller Theological Seminary. Together. 
when we start talking about racial reconciliation, we have to, especially in terms of African Americans and, and whites, we have to ask ourselves, at what point in American history were African Americans and, or African people of African descent and white people ever at an equal relationship where there wasn't where there wasn't um, torture, where there wasn't slavery, where there wasn't anything involved, power, coercion involved in that relationship. And so I think that to call it racial reconciliation implies that things were were good, that there was some there was some point where everything, you know, hey, it was, it was Gucci and we were getting along together and then we did the slavery thing and then it was bad and we did this Jim Crow thing and then it was bad, but then hey, let's let's get back together again. Um, that's not how it is. So I think that a better term for that. Um, some people say like racial conciliation. Um, not enough people know that word. Mm -hmm. So I prefer um, to think about it in terms of healing. And um, healing, what that, what that means to me and what that looks like to me, is being able to come together somewhat like in, in spaces like this where people of color, I think I can only really speak from the African American side of it, but where we're able to come in and we're able to tell our stories, we're able to ask questions, we're able to answer questions and, and be a safe place, but then they're also being an understanding of what, what what whiteness is, and I see you have like the book Waking Up White here on your on your tray, and I, and I hope that some of you guys um, you know, take the time to read that. But but what does that mean to be white? Because to me, and I'm saying this as somebody who's not white, but I have had to learn about whiteness. I've had to be a student of your guys's culture in a way that I that you guys haven't had to be a student. Um, you know, growing up in a high school that was a very similar size to this, being one of only a handful of um, people of color in the in the school. You know, there's a black community in in Clinton. There's um, you know, there's there's some Hispanic people. There's even some some Asian people. We didn't, I didn't go to school um, with any, but being but, but having to learn how to exist in that space and learn how to exist with racism. Um, having to exist with my with my friends and my relatives, having to exist in racism. There's a whole conversation that I think that our that our nation needs to have that should center on on healing the wounds of the oppressed, of the people who have been hurt and who have been marginalized by this system of whiteness. Because even the system of whiteness, y'all don't realize it, but but it's hurting it's hurting y'all too. And it's and it's making it, it's it's putting because I want to say whiteness. It's not having white skin. That it's not it's not about skin color. You can be a person of color and still have a mind that's that's wrapped up in what whiteness is. But I won't, but I won't get into all that. Read the book. <laughs> read the read the book. I'm gonna pump up that. I'm gonna pump up that book. Um, so I think that that yeah. So so I'm more in favor of, of healing of of having the space to be able to talk and to be able to think and be able to dialogue and for and for people um, for for power in our. I think that talking like long term. I think that that systems racism also has. There, there's the interpersonal aspect of it, so just kind of our attitudes toward one another.
but there's also a system that um, that favors people. I know that some of you guys are learning about about privilege and, and incarceration and, and that type of stuff. And there's a lot of racial factors to that. So I think that if we can work on the systems and work on the people, that's what brings healing. So I'm more in working on the people. You know, I'm a minister. That's that's my job is working on people. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a whatever to be able to to do stuff with systems, even though I can call out the systems and say this is this is wrong, this is bad. I'm more about healing the people that we that we need to build. Ask me anything. Don't don't be scared or shy or worried that you're going to say the wrong thing. It's it's a, it's a safe place, so you don't have to worry about saying the wrong thing. I have questions, but I don't know how to. I don't know like what the questions are. So like, I don't know how to word them. But like, how do you use like the Bible and religion to like support you, and like how do you like minister like your views and what you're trying to do? Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, I, I understand, and, you know, and, I, and I understand this is public school, I won't preach to you all, but my Christian belief, I'm a Christian, my, my Christian ethics, for me, I see it throughout the Bible. Um, first of all, the, the, um, the first greatest commandment was love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second greatest commandment is to love others, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so racism at its root is a, is a breaking of that second commandment. And really it's also breaking the first greatest commandment too because if you can't love your brother and sister, then you certainly can't love God because Jesus also talked about how you can't, it's easy to, to love your friends, but it takes something special to love your enemies. So if you can't, so God is saying it, not saying that white people are my enemies, but just bringing that scripture in to make the point that you can't have the love of Christ in you if you claim to hate people and if you have um, wrong wrong attitudes toward people. So to me, it's like I see it at that, there's, there's a lot more that I could say about that, but at that very basic level, I see that it's, it's you know, Jesus commanded us to, to love one another and racism isn't loving one another. And so we were supposed to do that. So is your main focus like on racism and stuff? I wouldn't say that my, that that is what my main focus in life is. You know, I have I have two kids. Um, I like I'm going to school. You know, so I so that that's not I wouldn't say that's my main focus. But um, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on whether you want to see the glass half empty or half full, it has had to become a focus for me, and it has had to take up a lot of my time and a lot of my energy because there the, the world has changed. And I can, you know, I'm uh, 33 and a half years old, and I've lived through some things and seen some things. I'm not terribly old, but I'm old enough to remember a way that it used to be and a way that it didn't be used to be. And I can say that in my time, um, racism has always been there. It's not, it's not a brand new invention. Um, like, you know, depending on who you ask, it wasn't Donald Trump or Barack Obama who, who invented racism. Racism was alive and well whenever I was a kindergartner watching TV and seeing Klan on the Sally Jesse Raphael show. I was, you know, the, the, uh, the racism was alive and well the first time somebody called me an N-word whenever I was in first grade. 
And so racism was alive and well all the times that I was in high school and, and substitute teachers would, um, would, would give bad reports on me, the only one, in the, of the only black person in the class, yet I was a good student and never did anything wrong and never been to the principal or anything like that, but somehow, when the teacher was away, I was the only one that, that acted up. Um, racism was alive and well in, in all those instances, and in all those times, and it wasn't Barack or uh, Donald Trump who were the president then. But, I can, but with all of that said, I can say that I, that since Ferguson especially, I have seen racism come alive in a way that I have not seen before in my 33 years. In my 33 years, I have not seen where the Klan, I mean, I've known about the Klan marching, I've known, like, that's, that's happened, but not the scale and the level that we saw in, in Charlottesville. And that hit home, especially because I used to live in Virginia, I used to drive through Charlottesville, Charlottesville to get home. Um, all the time, it's it was it was hit. I had friends that are from the area and lived there. That would hit pretty pretty close to home. So I say all of that to say that um, I think that we are living in a very unique time. I think that uh, my parents were alive through the civil rights movement. I have um, relatives that remember that have living memory of segregation. Um, my parents remember remember the civil rights movement. They remember whenever whenever Dr. King was shot. They can they can you know, say where they where they were whenever they heard that news, and listening to their stories, listening to my, my parents' stories and my older aunts and uncles' stories and my grandparents' stories, I can say that I'm living in a time that is unlike theirs in the sense of I'm here sitting in front of you guys. Um, so that would have happened, you know, in my, in my grandparents' time. Um, I'm able to go to go down to McDonald's and eat in the same restaurant. You know, I can go and I can drink out of the same water fountain here, use the same bathroom. So it's unlike their time in that respect, but it's also very much like their time in the respect of the of the level of, of fear and the level of, of craziness um, that that I've that I've witnessed personally, that I've that I've experienced personally that, that you know having having neighbors with their with their Confederate flag just decide just just pop up and just decide that they're gonna that they're gonna park their car so I can so I can see their their flag and and um, you know pop stuff up in in their in their window just and, and having their car facing facing my house just so that they just so I know that they're that they're there. Um, and other different things that, that this one over here knows, because I because I tell her some of my stuff, but I try to tell people stuff and try not to remember, but she would, if you asked her, she would know some of the stuff that, that we've that I've seen or that friends of ours have seen and whatever. But that's that's the time and that's very real. And I think that um, while, like I said, you know, while my time isn't the same. As my parents' time, my grandparents' time, I see a lot of similarities, and I see the the rise in activism in my community that wasn't there like whenever um, whenever I was a kid. You know, nobody um, whenever I was your age, no one cared about joining the NAACP. There really weren't um, a whole lot of organizations that were that were dedicated for for Black people that were dedicated to to um, getting rid of, of racism. 
and we sort of lived whenever Barack Obama got elected. I'm old enough to remember um, whenever he got elected and old enough to have voted in that election. I won't tell you who I voted for, um, but I'm old enough to have voted in that election and remembering the feelings of, wow, there's a person who looks like me who's president. And my mom calling me, crying me, crying, telling me on the phone that she never thought she would ever see a black person be president in her lifetime. And how she wished that my grandmother was alive to see that because that's how much it meant to her to have a black man as a president. How much it meant to me to have a black man as a president, to take his oath of office on some steps that slaves laid. And you probably don't know this, but Barack Obama is actually descended from slaves on his mom's side. He's descended actually from the first person, one of the first people to be legally declared to slaves. I mean, his name was uh, John Bunch or something like that, John Punch, um, something like that. He's actually descended um, on, his, on his mother's side. Um, from from slaves, and to, so to see that, and even if you weren't descended from slaves, the fact that people that look like him and look like me built that capital, and he took his oath there, that was that was a huge that was a huge thing, and so yeah, so I just so I feel like that um, the time in which we live is such an important and critical time, and what has motivated me even to do this work was my kids, is because I realized of being an adult during this time that my kids were going to look back whenever they were your age and sitting in their classrooms and reading their history books. I firmly believe that this period of time is going to be in the history books. And whenever they're your guys' age, and they open up their history books, and they start calculating how old they were, and they start calculating how old mom and dad were. And whenever we start talking about the new civil rights movement you know, in 30 years, and they asked mom and dad, what did you guys do during that time? I didn't want to, be able, I didn't want to tell my kids, you know, I didn't do anything. I wasn't, I, I just, I, I was too scared. I, and so that's why I do what I do, and that's why it sort of has become a focus and more of a focus than I, I've told people, it's like, I don't want to be talking about this in 20 years. And you know, it's your guys, it's your, it's your generation um, that, that you guys have the power to, to vote. You guys have the power to stand up and to, and to speak out. You guys have like, the, the entire world at your fingertips um, in a way that previous generations haven't had. And so you can use that for good, and you could use that for equality for everyone, um, or you can use it to to bring hurt, to bring more hurt and, and harm. And so I really think that that you know it lies with you. So is it my main focus? No, but but is it is it um, is it what or is it what I want to be focused on as a main focus? No, but I do spend a lot of time doing it. Okay, and then so. Um, like the older generation, you mentioned like your mom and your dad and stuff. So, okay, I'm trying to word this in my head. I have no idea what I'm trying to ask. So, like, have you observed or do you think like they, because they were raised that way or whatever, like white people who are racist because they were raised that way, have you noticed that that has, um, like the new generation now that it, that they're kind of being more open and being like, you need to change, or like that. Oh, people just as racist as they yeah. as they have ever been. The only difference is that now um, it is taboo to say certain things. So the things that like um, your grandparents' generation or your great grandparents' generation could say openly. Um, the younger generation knows not to say those things, but the thoughts are still there. 
and some of the words. And, and think about you know the, the words in your family, your ex families might not be like this, but but other people's families, um, where where there are words used and jokes that are told and things that are all that are all the same, mindsets that are all the same that they used to be. It's just that people are a lot better at hiding it now because we've created this cultural taboo where you can't talk about race. And so not talking about race has made a lot of people think that racism is over because it's because there's been this taboo that, that for white people, oh, well, we just can't talk about it because there's, there's fear of saying the wrong thing. Or there's fear, I think, for some people, they realize that maybe they have some prejudices and so they don't want those things to come out and so they don't want to say anything and they don't want anybody else to say anything either because they're afraid that, oh, well, these things are going to come out and people are going to get mad. Um, but it's, it's, the, it's the same. It's, it's pretty much the same, unfortunately. How do you advise, because I would say I fall in the category of like not wanting to ask certain questions because I'm afraid of offending people or like hurting someone um, and not knowing how to like order phrase things. So how would you advise like entering that dialogue well? Um, That's a really good question. I think that um, a lot of it starts with relationships. Now, I know I'm aware of where I'm at. Ball River, Missouri is not the most diverse place <laughs> in, in Missouri, let alone in the United States. Um, but we have this really awesome thing called the internet where, <laughs> where you can get on the internet. And, and I heard this even on your phones now, too. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. But you can, but you can I'm not trying to be, be like degrading or sarcastic. I'm saying that, like, that like we have the ability now to break down walls just by getting on the internet and meeting people who don't look like us. And so I think that, um, that that's one of the main things is to enter into, once you enter into relationship with people and you get to know people a little bit better, you have the ability to be able to ask questions of people that maybe um, you weren't able, you didn't feel comfortable asking. The other thing, and the other reason why I bring up the internet, is like Google is a great is a great thing because a lot of the things, a lot of the things often that, that you're afraid to ask or that you're afraid to talk about, somebody has already said or somebody has already asked and has already made somebody mad and they've written about it somewhere. <laughs> um, so it's so it's very easy to if you're not sure if you're supposed to say that um, or if you're not sure if that's an okay topic, it's okay, it's okay to Google. I think that that even entering in um, to there there are spaces on Facebook and on the internet where you can get together with other people who are learning about race in the same way that you are. And um, you can ask questions there, you can be in spaces with people of color where, where it's safe and where they um, are able to say, no, 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 no don't, don't ask that. Like, don't, don't ever in your life ever say that again. Like, <laughs> like don't, don't ever do that again. Like, that's not okay. And it's, it's okay, to, and it's okay to make mistakes. Like, it's a, because, and I can't even speak for everyone, but I know that for myself, if I see somebody that, like, they're being legitimate, like, they, like, they're, like, you're legit wanting to know, and you're not being backhanded, and you're not whatever, I, like, I can't, you can't get mad at somebody for something that they don't know. Now, there is sort of, like, the effect of whenever a bunch of people ask you the same thing all the time, it's like, why don't you know this? <laughs> like, like what you can't get on the Google machine to figure this out. Like, like there is like there is an element of that where it can be like kind of really exhausting or whatever. Um, but I think that that building relationships with people that's that is the key because you'll start to learn about people. You'll start to learn about a different culture, different ways of being um, than you would just like like I guess just not knowing. And I think that that you know 
recommending the book again, <laughs> um, but also, but, but, but um, also like reading, reading authors, listening to podcasts, watching shows. Like there's just, there's a whole lot that you can learn just by observing, and there's a lot more that I can say about that. But that's the, that's the easy. That's like the introductory level. We might have a bell ring. soon, and that's there at least to lunch. So. Yeah, first lunch, do you want to stick around? Would you be able to? Oh, yeah, yeah. Some of you fully totally understand. Um,